This is session 11 of Technology-Enabled Blitzscaling, a Stanford University class taught by Reid Hoffman, John Lilly, Alan Blue, and Chris Yeh. This class features John Lilly interviewing Patrick Collison, the co-founder of Stripe. This podcast has been produced by Greylock Partners. For more podcasts, class notes, slides, and videos, please visit greylock.com. Okay, so this is class number 11. I think this is the midpoint. Very exciting. So we're talking about scaling from scaling to village, and we're very lucky to have Patrick Collison, who I think you will all find super interesting and super thoughtful. So just let's welcome Patrick. Thank you. So uh, so thanks for coming. And thanks he, for having me. He walked in with a book made of paper, which is always very exciting. Um, so um, can you just tell the story about uh, starting Stripe? Tell the founding story. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, and by the way, uh, apologies if uh, you know, suggesting this be off the record suggests that there'll be all these sort of salacious details or something. Um, but uh, mo mostly, just, I think it's much better in these to sort of be able to just sort of like directly sort of share everything and not have the sort of the process running in the back of your mind of sort of trying to run the uh, the, the, the filter on what makes sense for public con consumption. Because a lot of this stuff is sort of, this is not like a company that started you know, 10 years ago. This is kind of happening kind of week to week and month to month. Uh, but the, the sort of general story of Stripe is, well, I'm always a bit sort of skeptical of kind of founding mythology sort of around companies and that I'm pretty sure a lot, they get sort of heavily edited kind of post facto. Uh, for Stripe at least, it's um, it's really not that dramatic in the sense that uh, John, my co-founder, and brother and I were in school together. Uh, uh, I was, we were both in the East Coast and we, we'd started the building these iPhone apps together. Uh, and we were basically sort of uh, paying our college tuition out of sort of the revenue cone from these iPhone apps. And so we'd kind of gotten into the habit of, of just working on various side projects. And um, we, we kind of had realized that sort of it was, it was surprisingly easy to make money out of iPhone apps, right? And part of the reason it was so easy is because it was so easy to charge for things. And then we kind of were wondering, hmm, you know, despite building sort of all these things for the past couple of years, why do we never charge for anything online? We realized, well, it's just it's such a pain in the ass to sort of accept payments on the internet. You've just sort of hopped through all these hoops and basically get a mortgage or so right. it felt kind of just in, in order to sort of literally receive dollars from users of your software. And so I remember using... Uh, I'm not sure if anyone else here has used this, but there was a thing called Slicehost, uh, which was kind of the first really good um, sort of virtualized hosting provider. I mean, EC2, I think, was maybe around the same time, but EC2 required all this like crazy Java command line hackery. It like wasn't as easy to use as it is now. Slicehost was really straightforward. You could click like create server, you know, select your Linux distro, and sort of 30 seconds later, there's a root password email to you. And it was sort of really transformative because now getting just your own server was was just super straightforward, and, and it it meant that I it was kind of really lowered the activation energy and the barrier to entry for sort of going and building something. And we wondered basically why there wasn't Slicehost for payments. Um, and so I actually remember uh, it was in October two thousand nine. John and I were walking back from dinner together, and he kind of we'd been sort of batting around this idea for a while, Slicehost for payments. And um, I remember him commenting commenting to me that. Eh, you know, we should just we should build a prototype. It probably won't be that hard. <laughs> That's a um, simple question leading to twenty years of work. <laughs> right. Well, so, I was going to, so uh, Avi Bryant, who works at Stripe, calls uh, Stripe the world's uh, biggest ever yak shave. Um, <laughs> uh, and so maybe in another five years, we'll get back to building the side projects. But um, do you guys know what that? Can you explain what oh, yak shaving is? God. Kids these days. Um, so uh, uh, you know, uh, yak shave is sort of when you're, you're sort of 
building something or working on some problem and you, know, you realize that kind of some other abstraction is kind of inelegant or you should have some other thing and so you start you know, going and fixing that and you realize, well, really in order to fix that, this thing has to be this other way or whatever and so you kind of get seven layers down and you kind of forget where you even started because you know, the, the stack has gotten so deep. And so there's actually a great XKCD comic about Yak Shaves. I think he's like surrounded by sharks or something. He started trying to like fix his TV. I don't know. Anyway, um, if, you, if you search XKCD Yak Shave, it, it illustrates the concept it's pretty effectively. It's like tangentially related to bike shedding, but it's a different... Slightly different. Right, right, right. Um, I think there's an original parable about sort of shaving a yak and you have to buy scissors and whatever else. But um, uh, anyway, so uh, we, we decided to build the prototype and we, uh, we launched kind of the first version of it in January of 2010 um, to just like a couple of friends. It was kind of built with uh, sort of duct tape and, and you know, wire. Uh, sort of really the, the sort of foundations upon which it was built were, were sort of fairly flimsy, but it was enough to kind of just get a sense for the basic product experience of sort of what it would be like. You kind of instantly start charging credit cards just with a kind of a curl command. Um, Stripe wasn't called Stripe back then. It was called uh, slash dev slash payments um, because we, you can tell we were <laughs> great branding experts, but um, uh, we sort of wondered what it would be like to have sort of a payments API that was kind of as straightforward as just, you know, the interface to a node in sort of, you know, the device file system. You know, you have dev mouse or dev audio or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, we, we launched that prototype in January 2010. And it just sort of took off by word of mouth where we sort of, it wasn't even launched publicly, but we kind of had this ever accumulating wait list um, through kind of people telling their friends about it or whatever. And like, this is this was kind of really surprising to us because, I mean, again, it's like an API for charging credit cards. Like, it's not a social network. And so the fact that sort of people were talking about it and telling others about it was, was kind of quite surprising to us. And so then that summer, we decided to go and work on it for the summer as a kind of bootstrapped internship. Uh, and, uh, and we've basically been on leave uh, since then. <laughs> I'm sure you'll go back soon. Um, so uh, that, that, well, that, that, That's what my mom often uh, tries to ensure. Yeah. Um, so uh, well, so you, you had go gone through starting a company before, you and your brother. Right, yeah, Shuppa, Shuppa, Shuppa. <laughs> right, uh, so Shuppa is the another artist. excellent branding. Yeah, yeah, we're branding work. Right, um, so uh, we'll actually get to the story of how we found the name Stripe. It was actually literally randomly chosen, but anyway. Um, so we'd, we'd pre previously started this other kind of company together, which um, uh, was basically kind of predicated on the notion that sort of there was surprising illiquidity in sort of used items. That sort of part of what uh, when you buy something new, kind of part of the service that a store provides is kind of to solve the information problem of like, where can I get a thing, right? Uh, and, and so kind of, you can kind of think of the internet as a coordinating force in some way, and sort of how, how can you kind of expose all this sort of latent presence of all this stuff in sort of a more effective way. Um, and uh, it didn't really work as we thought. Um, so we went back to school. Well, you had, but you kind of teamed up with the, that's when you got in, involved in YC the first time. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's like a, a kind of complicated story and sort of involved merging with another company and then that company got acquired. And so it was actually like a really good learning experience. It was kind of when we like raised our first investment and, you know, hired our first people. And so it just kind of got a sense for kind of how a startup worked. And there were, I guess, I guess I was, I was taking the long way out. I should ask directly, which is you, um, you said, you know, you created this payments API and then people just started talking about it. I guess I, my question was going to be, you know, what people and how did they find out? And ah, I, so I yep. guess when I was implying that you built on top of a community I see, I see. was some, in some part connected to YC. So, so that's very true. So uh, I had, um, uh, I've been involved in uh, sort of Lisp programming uh, for, for a real long time. Uh, and 
well, I presume folks here know about Lisp, and uh, it's sort of it's a state of morbidity. So it's a, it's a pretty small community. Uh, and through that, I got to know Paul Graham, who of course was was working on YC, and kind of this other company we'd started had sort of got, got, gone through YC. And so yeah, as, as a result, when we went and we built this payments API for developers, sort of incredibly straightforward to, to get started. We actually sort of a lot of our friends were thinking about starting companies or had started companies or things like that. Uh, sort of we we'd sort of some sense for that community in general. Um, and that was actually sort of quite powerful because exactly to your point, there were sort of people you just go and show it to and get some feedback from, and you kind of knew who was on the cusp of needing to start charging for their software, you know, who was, who was running out of money, they might need some revenue or, or whatever the case might be. Uh, and so I think that for the first maybe 20 or 30 users, users or thereabouts, uh, they were almost all YC companies or friends of people who we knew had gone through YC and, and yep. things like that. Yep. So that's so that. One of my rules of thumb is try to put yourself around people who are doing interesting things. And then when you find interesting things and they start talking about them, that's a pretty good signal. Uh, I think that's very true. And so I remember, uh, maybe it must have been summer 2010 or 2011, when people would start talking about you guys, about dev payments around here. And I guess you had come and done the YC class in 2000. 10 here? Is that what you did? Or did you? Yeah, we, Stripe actually never kind of formally went through YC. YC invested. Is that true? Um, I didn't know that. But, but it kind of never went through the program itself. Huh. That's interesting. That's news to me. So, okay. So, we're going to um, go into Stripe in a second. Um, could you talk, talk about what it's like to start a company with your brother? Like, yeah. Um, I guess you don't know anything else. I was going to say, right. Um, full sand. So, the, the kind of trite answer I often give is uh, that you know it's kind of good because we we have the chance to uh, sort of really get good at resolving our differences from a pretty early stage. You know, we've sort of uh, uh, twenty years of kind of fighting in various ways uh, be, behind us, um, and even though that's kind of uh, I don't know facetious in some way. Uh, I do think that the common case for like the really high growth startup uh, is for the co-founder kind of um, set uh, to break apart. Like it generally doesn't persist. And so if you, I mean, just you look at most companies, right? Um, sort of there's some schism or, or disagreement or whatever that, that kind of proves insurmountable. And I, I, you know, I think that sort of having a really strong kind of foundational relationship there, sort of, I mean, you know, if, Filial relationship is, I guess, one version of that. But even if it's not that, sort of, I think the cases where sort of you you know the person for like upwards of a decade, those in general seem to fare kind of much better. Yeah. And so, in that sense, I think it's it's been basically really helpful where we have the kind of relationship where there's kind of no uh, there's there's no difficulty in telling the other person that you're really screwing this up, right? Yeah. Or this is like completely broken, or yeah. kind of whatever the case might be, because it, it's a given that sort of those situations are going to arise. And so the question is only kind of how how do you uh, how effectively can you react to them? We'll come back to that as we talk about how you're growing in a little bit, and okay. how you bring other management into that. Um, and then I, I guess my observation would be a lot of a lot of founders split, um, but the really successful companies it doesn't happen. So Larry and Sergey, uh, Jerry and Dave, uh, you know Reed yep. and Reed and Alan were together. So many, many, many persist. Uh, that, that's true. That's true. Uh, and in those cases, I think, uh, or at least. Last time I went through it, um, I, I went through kind of 20 companies, and it seemed that there was like a fairly striking kind of inverse uh, correlation between yeah, just length of uh, or duration that they kind of known each other beforehand and kind of the, 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 the subsequent outcome. Yeah, I think that's right. And we'll find, we'll, we'll hear from Nirav on Thursday about his relationship with Sarah Leary. That's a decades long relationship as well. Um, which actually, we just have another point, which is you read a ton of history. So Patrick's a very, like, there, there are a few interesting people I follow on, on Twitter, and Patrick's one of them. And he'll, he'll, He'll be embarrassed that I said that, but um, the most recent thing he tweeted out is history about of Xerox Park, which everybody should look at the history of Xerox Park because holy smokes, 
a lot of stuff came out of that place. But why do you, um, you spend more time reading history of everything really than almost anybody I follow on Twitter. Why do you do that? It's just, it's a way to cheat uh, in that you, uh, everyone else ignores all the good ideas from history. And so you can just be much smarter by just, you, know, you, you could, you know, just try to think all these incredibly original thoughts by sort of sitting down and sort of staring at the wall for days on end, or you can, you can sort of cheat by just, you know, I mean, they are in fact written down in books that you can just read. Um, and again, I kind of mean that a little bit facetiously, but I think that sort of Alan Kay has this quote about, um, about computer science, uh, where he calls it sort of pop culture, um, but, but by sort of, which he means that sort of for most uh, kind of communities or, or sort of, again, subcultures or whatever the case might be, sort of, there's, a, there's a progression, right? Things build upon what, what came before. Whereas in, in computer science and in so much of technology, it's sort of just this like Brownian motion through the problem space uh, and sort of uh, with, with no account given to kind of uh, what, what's, what's come previously. Um, and I think that sort of we as, a, as an industry do ourselves an enormous disservice by sort of being so blind and kind of blithely ignorant to it. And, you know, it... it Right from sort of uh, Engelbart doing sort of the first demo, I mean, we've all kind of heard of Engelbart as, you know, inventing the mouse, whereas sort of in actuality what he invented was sort of so much more than that. He basically invented Etherpad or like the first kind of real-time, you know, collaborative word processor. He had uh, like video conferencing uh, integrated with the word processor. You yep. could annotate and hyperlink documents together in real time. Like he basically had a better system than Hangouts as far as I'm concerned that, that he demoed in, I guess it was 68 or whatever. 67, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and then if you look at sort of what came out of Park or, yeah. I mean, so much of kind of this early work that, I mean, frankly, it's better than so much of what we ended up with. Now, that's not to say there hasn't been sort of a lot of value in, uh, in kind of what's ensued. I mean, we've solved all kinds of sort of deployment problems and technological problems and scaling problems and so forth. But in terms of sort of the core ideas behind so much of it, I think that sort of in some ways there was much better thinking among some of the kind of uh, the creators. And kind of in, in a substantial way, I think that like the, the kind of the, the line of thinking around sort of the, the early conception of, of sort of, of so much of this kind of software technology was about kind of empowerment of humans and the kind of the phrases that were batted around were things like um, intelligence augmentation, intelligence amplification, uh, augmenting human intellect, things like that. So this is kind of the original kind of bicycle for the mind idea. Um, which I think is sort of incredibly potent, right? Yep. Kind of how, how, can we, how can we leverage this software to make us more effective at sort of whatever it is that we might be doing? And then I think that sort of so much of kind of what's happened with the internet uh, or kind of the modern technology industry as we know it is either sort of a, a very kind of basic sort of functionality around sort of um, utilities, right? So it's not about sort of higher level intellectual functions. It's about just, I mean, not that it's not valuable, but like how do I get a car to come to yep. here? I'm, I'm really delighted that like that service exists, yep. but it, it's not sort of part of that original line of thinking. Um, uh, or it's about basically entertainment. Uh, it's yep. about sort of uh, the internet as sort of a more interactive version of television, which also, you know, has some merit. I mean, that it's not, enter entertainment yep. has merit, uh, but, but sort of I, th I think there's been a, a significant loss of that. And I think that people, I mean, this is a kind of a longer conversation, but I mean, basically to answer your question, I think there's kind of a systematic undervaluing of, of tools and sort of uh, undervaluing and lack of appreciation for, for the kind of impact that that can have, because it, it's harder to, it's harder to perceive, and uh, when you do something directly, you can yep. you can see what it is. Whereas right. when you're enabling something, you have to kind of make that additional leap. And kind of a way we often phrase it for Stripe is that most technology companies are building cars, whereas Stripe is building roads, uh, and that you know it's that kind of distinction. I'll get, I promise I'm going to get to scaling. I just want to spend a little bit more time on this. So I, the, the, a lot of things really spoke to me on that. So. Um, 
Meeting Doug Ingobar. So Doug came in. Have you met him? Did you meet him before he died? Sadly, no. He, we, uh, we, we, had, we had Alan Kay and Stuart Brand speak at Stripe recently, but I never met Doug. So Alan, I want to talk about that in a second, too. Because So Doug came to visit us at Apple. So Doug was at Xerox Park, and I remember he came in, and we showed him demos in uh, probably 1999. He's like, finally, somebody did this that I said 30 years ago. And that happened like five times during our demo. Like, okay, fine. So, But I think, I think a lot of what happened was that it was a quieter time. It was less mm-hmm. noisy. And so more mm-hmm. people were thinking harder. And so I think that resulted in better quality of thought overall about what's happening. And it's, it's just shocking to me that so many things happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s that are echoing now. And even Alan Kay, like the other, the other, his other quote was that point of view is worth 80 IQ yep. points, which what a brilliant quote. It's like try to figure out the right problem. And if you look at it from the right point of view, you win, right? Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think it's really easy to have this kind of um, – Kind of in a historical sense, these sort of the, the, this you know rose tinted sort of view of history, and sort of I think there is kind of uh, occasionally kind of a, a facile way in which people say that uh, you know X or Y has been done previously, and sort of there's nothing interesting actually being done today, and so forth. And I think that that sort of um, that that misses the fact that so much of uh, sort of the, the details really matter in software, right? And sure. that you can be sort of 90% correct, but, you know, that, that, I mean, that, that's like, that's like yeah. being merely 90% alive, right? right. <laughs> um, and, and that sort of, you, you don't get a whole lot of partial credit. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't around, uh, but I, 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 I'm very curious sort of uh, why it was that um, they're kind of, why this perspective did differ. Um, and I, I suspect part of it is that it was quieter. I don't know, maybe there was less... Facebook were, and Twitter and TechCrunch yeah. and all the rest, yeah, which maybe, maybe night, speaks yeah. my own discredit. But um, I think also part of it is just kind of the ambition, honestly, um, in the sense that, uh, like, it, there's a great book that I, I'd recommend you, know, you all read um, called The Dream Machine by Mitchell Waldrop, which I think is the certainly at least the best history that I know of um, about sort of the, the early days of sort of technology and the internet and kind of the, the computer revolution. Uh, and one thing that it sort of makes clear is how it kind of it wasn't uh, at least you know, the kind of the, the book's argument and thesis goes it wasn't inevitable that sort of so many of these things happened or some of the, the, these kind of ideas were percolating. It was sort of particular people who had particular ambitions. Uh, folks like uh, uh, Licklider, sort of originally at MIT, who kind of funded a lot of the work that sort of led to the internet, um, and sort of then I guess his intellectual descendants like Engelbart and Kay and so forth. Um, and I guess the, the, the optimistic view would be that, that sort of a lot of that kind of ambition about sort of the, the power that software can have on society sort of can in fact be reclaimed, um, or at least that we're not sort of going to necessarily fall victim to, you know, the, the, yep. the noise that surrounds us today. The Twitters, yeah. Well, that's why I'm spending a little bit extra time on this. So um, Though I'm actually, I should just say, like, I, I think Twitter is a tremendous oh, me sort too. Of force for good. I kind of live on it, so it's, I make fun of it, and I'm a little yeah. bit self-conscious about it. But, um, but then the other thing I was going to say is that my mental, my, my models of computing are Alan Kay, the Dyna book, which mm-hmm. was essentially describes Apple and client computing, and Xerox Park Ubi, UbiComp, which essentially right. describes terminals and Google. And those are still the two dominant models of computing today, 50 years later. And so when I look at client or server, it's essentially Xerox and, 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 and Xerox. Yep. Actually, that's kind of it. Okay, so um, I was going to ask you what a philopolist is. But I'm going to wait till the end because I'm excited <laughs> about that. I told, he had a word in his eight-word Twitter bio that I had to look up, um, but I like it now. So um, let's talk about Stripe. So, um, so how big is Stripe now today? Uh, I think it's around 330 people. 330, and it's only well as one metric at least. And it's five years five years old. Yeah, we're. It's actually kind of a bit hard because you know, do you count from? I mean, basically that dinner when sort of John misled me, or um, or sort of from when we start 
like first launched it or whatever. But uh, generally what I sort of count from is when we launched publicly, um, uh, because we had, we had fewer than 100 users sort of at that point, and we launched publicly to the world uh, September 30th, 2011. And so we kind of just celebrated our fourth birthday post-launch. And so we're kind of effectively on the order of five years from kind of really working at full time and then four years from public launch. Okay, so you're 330 people now. A year ago, were you half, this, half that size? Yeah, probably this time a year ago, maybe 160, 70 people. Oh yeah, so about doubling every yeah. year now. Yeah, what was it that Eric Schmidt said? You can Doubling every year is possible, quadrupling every year is really hard. Uh, certainly we could not quadruple every year. Yeah. Um, so talk about how you're organized. Um, this might turn into an evening class, but um, uh, well, I, I want to mention. Just in, in oh. general, how the company oh, works. How or? You, yeah, how you run. Like, do you have yeah. do you have vice presidents? Do you have see, see. managers? Do you does Got everybody it. do whatever they want? And right. you know, holacracy. What yeah. happens? That's right. Um, so, so, so the the, the harder bit, I suppose, is that we're relatively conventionally organized, uh, and that sort of I, I think the I mean, there's always such a temptation sort of when you're starting out to go and sort of uh, you know reconceive the nature of humanity and how people can collaborate and, mm -hmm. and, and coordinate and so forth. Um, and that basically you should really kind of try to um, discourage that inner voice. Um, and I think it sort of comes from a good place where you want to kind of reconceive all of these things, right? Um, but there's kind of, there's two problems with that. Um, the, the first is that uh, uh, it, it's, you kind of need to think about sort of what risks you're taking in the business and sort of empirically the standard means of organization are sufficiently effective to create the Googles and the Facebooks and the Intels and so forth of the world. And so, I mean, even if, just posit that sort of you're actually capable of conceiving a more effective way of having you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of people working together, whether you actually need that to achieve your, your actual goals. Um, and the second one is that probably all of the problems with any alternative that you could conceive are things that you haven't been exposed to right. sort of to date. You just don't have the life experience uh, to, to sort of anticipate. Uh, and so basically, whatever you think you should probably do instead, you're almost certainly wrong. Um, and So let's stay on that for a second. That's okay. an unusual thing for a Silicon Valley person to say. Don't is, innovate. Yeah. Maybe old people know what they're doing because they've done it before or they've lived through it. Can, we, can you break that apart a little bit? Yeah, it's... Um, As an old person, I'm excited <laughs> about this line of questioning. Um... I think that, um, well, technology changes a lot, right? Uh, and so I think sort of the right answers, uh, sort of given, listen, the right answer is a function of the current technological equilibrium, right? And so if an old person thinks that such and such is a bad idea or something like that, I mean, there's an excellent chance that now, some period of time later, they're wrong, right? Yeah, um, because, right? Because kind of that, 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 that dependent variable idea. has changed, yep. right? Um, but people aren't changing a whole lot. And so sort of whatever the optimal system was kind of some period of time previously, you know, is, is um, I think still is a, your, your default prior should be still probably, you know, a pretty good idea. I'll caveat that with, I think if you just kind of look at the history of Silicon Valley, things are in fact changing, even though people themselves aren't changing that much, um, because I guess just the environment, people's expectations and so forth are, are, are changing. And secondly, I think that sort of a, kind of a, a discount factor on sort of how, how well we do things yep. is that people do copy too much. Yep. Uh, that's kind of this mimetic force at play. And kind of my favorite example of this is uh, uh, kind of standard Silicon Valley interviews. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I can't remember his name. Um, uh, Google's uh, Laszlo, HR. Laszlo Bach. right? Uh, wrote this great article for the, the New York Times where, uh, as I recall, he sort of admitted <laughs> that uh, they've, they'd observed almost no correlation between GPA and indeed uh, uh, Google sort of you know, interviews themselves and sort of the subsequent performance at Google, right? Um, that certainly was the case for GPA. I can't remember if it was the case for the, for the interviews. But um, sort of, it, like, 
essentially every company does sort of the same kind of algorithm style interviews and coding on the whiteboard and so forth. And essentially everyone, at least almost everyone I've talked to, kind of knows that it doesn't really work, doesn't right? Work. And yet nothing changes. And it just, it just seems so insane, right? And as far as I can tell, it's sort of, uh, you, you, you want to... Um, you want to be successful, you look at what the successful company does. They do algorithms and interviews on the whiteboard and so forth. And so dis despite the fact that most technology companies are not about writing algorithms on whiteboards, um, that you, you sort of want to, to, to translate and to sort of bring across what, you know, what it is that they do. And it, it's just like surprisingly robust and resilient. And so we don't do that. We just try to think about, well, what it is that the people at Stripe are actually doing day to day. I mean, they're writing code on their laptops. And so our interviews are largely, we've wrote a core answer about this, but it's largely writing code on your laptop yep, in the yep. environment you're familiar with and experience with and so forth. Um, and it works really well. And then when people join, they're, they're generally pretty good at you know, yeah. writing good code on their laptops. And uh, you know, so, so anyway, there's, um, there is this, again, sort of discount factor where I think people just, um, the, the, there's too much inertia yep. um, in, in the existing ideas. But having said that, in terms of just the organization of a large group of people, default is to trust the mechanism. Yeah, maturation, it's a lot like technology, which is core processes that run a lot uh, you really, it's really worth figuring out from first principles. And for you, that's recruiting. Um, and sometimes, yep. and there's a number of things, but invention is really hard. And invention without, and dealing, because it means kind of dealing with unintended consequences. There's a lot of things that happen when you do things differently than everybody's done it. Right. There's no maps, there's no guidance. I, 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 think, I think there's also just kind of um, a question of sort of the cost benefit, right? Uh, in the sense that, uh, like, if you can be sort of uh, you know, somewhat better, even epsilon better on recruiting, sort of, really, really maybe, maybe that actually matters, yep. right? Uh, whereas for a significant fraction, sort of the things that have to happen in a company, I mean, you, you can fail if you screw them up, um, but they're not going to be sort of the, the things that, uh, that, that sort of create outside success by themselves. And for those, again, it's just probably, even if you, you kind of posit that you're right, that you can do them better than all of your kind of mistaken predecessors, is it really worth right. spending, your, spending your time there? Because, I mean, fundamentally, you're, that's the most constrained resource. Right. Yep. Okay. So you talked about your laptop interviews. You guys had a reputation, I think, well deserved for being excellent at hiring uh, very, very, very good developers. Um, and can, do you, how long did it take before you started doing laptop interviews? Is that is it? And has it is it changed now that you're 300 people? Yeah. So um, so I think the. Uh, well, it's also hard to know for anything that was like good or bad at Stripe. One, it's hard to know whether it is actually good or bad, um, uh, or whether that's just perception. I mean, in the case of hiring, I actually think we I think you're we, all right. we, we, we lucked out. Yeah. But um, anyway, I think that you're never sort of entirely sure. Um, but then, secondly, yeah, how, how much was kind of you can never kind of piece apart the attribution of all the different factors, right? Uh, and so, for example, one thing I think we benefited from was the fact that Stripe builds software and tools for developers, uh, for engineers. And so, I think there's kind of more of an affinity than I mean for you know, some randomly selected other product. How much did that factor matter? I don't know, right? Potentially all of it can be attributed to that. And in fact, you know, the different ways in which we do interviews is completely inconsequential. I don't quite think that's true. I think the, um, probably the biggest thing that, uh, in a, aside from kind of how we interview folks, um, that we did differently is just being okay taking a really long time to hire people um, in that, you know, people, kind of the received wisdom is, you know, work really hard to hire the best people. And you're like, Gee, thanks. You know, I was going to do the opposite, but now you've said that. Um, work really hard to hire the best people, and so the, I guess the question is sort of, to what lengths should you go, and and kind of what does that actually mean in practice? And in practice, it means being okay waiting a really long time to hire people, uh, and, and having to be sort of painfully persistent in doing so. And so, you know, it, it took us. Uh, let me think. Um, it took us a year. Well, it, it, it took us. It took us maybe six months to hire the first two people. Yeah. So. 
This just seems probably the same Almond told about Airbnb, I think, yep. maybe nine months. So a person per quarter, even though we had this kind of network already and knew all these people, we managed like one every three months. And then in, I think, the six months after that, we maybe hired another three or four people kind of uh, on that order. Yep. Um, we, we did sort of week-long trials with them. We had some of them kind of not work out. We... Um, in many cases, they sort of thought they didn't want to join. And so it was kind of this like three-month life conversation about, I mean, <laughs> therapy session of sort of, you know, what the, the best thing for, for these people to be doing would be. And I mean, this is, I think, what you find when you're sort of trying to hire the best people because you can kind of go either sort of, um, you, you can filter first by kind of, um, by expressed interest or something. And then you can sort of secondarily filter for, okay, and which ones are good. Or you can first look for the good ones and then try to sort of convert them to like expressed interest. Um, and I think that the kind of the, the latter is the more effective way to go yep. about it. But then that means you have to sort of turn this aircraft carrier where, I mean, if you just think kind of ex ante about sort but of- But the, the aircraft most, carrier is the candidate you want to go get. Exactly, right, yes. Um, uh, bit of a tortured metaphor, but um, if you just think about sort of the smartest people you know and you want to get them to work on your thing, I mean, chances are the smartest people you know are working uh, already. Yeah, they, 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 like their they, job. they have like pretty good paths ahead yep. of them, right? Uh, and sort of to kind of That's consistently right. try to rotate these is, 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 just takes a real long time. And so there are multiple people at Stripe now today who took us several years to hire. Um, like, uh, I, I can think off the top of my head of maybe five people who took three plus years to hire. Yep. And the idea sort of that, you know, when you're so early in the company's history that you should, you should be kind of investing in people, you know, who, who, for whom it might take that length of time to hire it's them, crazy, it seems yeah. kind of crazy, yeah. right? Um, and so I think maybe the, apart from sort of interviewing people sensibly, I think the, the, the big thing that people uh, have to keep in mind in sort of early stage company recruiting is just, you have to be way more persistent and be okay with it taking way longer than any sane or reasonable person, you know, could think it should take. Yep, and that's what Drew Houston says about Aditya. He says they tried tried to get Aditya and Ruchi, uh, Aditya runs engineering for over a year. Yep. He had to acquire his company to get him to do it. Yep. Um, you know, I was reminded that I'm involved in a search company in Palo Alto, and it's, it's about two years old. But it, the 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 painful the the vicious cycle is that you're going so slowly when it's the first two or three people. And you're like, holy smokes, if we could just get another set of hands. And you know, right. but you don't want to do it. But we talk a lot in this class about compound interest and the value of compounding yes. interest. Yep. Like if you get just one great person, right. that makes it marginally easier to get the next great person. So I think it's that dynamic in spades. And then kind of secondly, I think kind of another way to think about it that maybe makes the kind of the importance of it and the potency kind of clearer is that you have to kind of imagine the the, the light cone or, or kind of the the, right. the tree of sort of all the people this person will hire. And so kind of rather than just thinking about it as kind of, do, do I want this person or not? It's like, do I want this person and the 50 people yep. who I think that they will hire? Because even if they don't literally hire 50 people, they will be kind of so influential in determining sort of the self-selection of those 50 people. Yep. Um, and so you're kind of, you're, you're really picking this kind of, uh, you know, this giant branch of, of kind of a potential future organization. Yep. And then there's something where you get to a critical mass and suddenly you get another, a new chunk where they all believe right. that it might not be crazy to go work for the startup. Uh, yes. In our case, it took a long time. Um, yeah, a couple uh, years but, probably. But, right. Uh, and that kind of also gets into sort of networks and so forth where sort of sometimes you, you, you know, these, these, these things can sort of compound more rapidly because they're not completely independent variables. Right. So, um, so it sounded like you, you, it sounds like you had the sense that you had product market fit at the very beginning. You did this, right. you did this thing and people started talking about it. Is that, is that true? Um, yes and no. Um, so yes, in the sense that kind of from the very beginning, sort of 
shockingly, this idea of, I mean, again, it really doesn't sound promising, I think, sort of, uh, certainly a lot of people we talked to uh, didn't think so, sort of a, a, a credit card API that was really simple to use over curl and you could set up instantly. It, it isn't, you're not immediately like, all right, let me invest. Yeah. Um, uh, and indeed, most people weren't. But uh, uh, that, in fact, turned out to be sort of a pretty good idea. And sort of, it ended up kind of playing into all these kind of larger sort of secular trends and like the rise of mobile and the shift from sort of advertising-based business models to transaction-based business models and, and kind of things like, like that. There wasn't that much, there wasn't that much that was really associated with mobile. No, no, but I think it was just kind of that sort of, there was actually, it was kind of a period of high turnover in the yep. industry. And so kind of more things were getting kind of rebuilt yep. from scratch yep. and so forth, right? Um, and then, and also product experience was becoming more important. And sure. so kind of just bouncing people to some other website to pay was just not Solved. viable in mobile, yep. right? Yep. Um, uh, so there was kind of that. But, but then I think kind of the, the second aspect, uh, which... Uh, kind of in, in which the product market fit wasn't quite there from the outset is in sort of the additional stuff that sort of happens kind of on top. And that, for example, one of the most successful things we've launched is this thing called Connect, which basically enables uh, people to sort of to pay other people with Stripe is kind of the, the, the very short way of describing it. And so you think about all these new marketplaces, right? And so Instacart and Postmates and DoorDash and Ship and so forth, right? Uh, are you an investor in Ship? No, no. Oh, okay. That's Sorry. Right. Uh, somebody touched work. But I um, like them all. I use them all. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, uh, Lyft, Uber, Airbnb, and so forth. Right. And so tons of these companies, in fact, I think the vast majority are, are built on Stripe. Right. But that requires sort of this additional set of APIs that we call Connect, sort of in order to do so and to sort of coordinate all these payments and keep track of them and sort of help them handle the tax issues and the, um, uh, I mean, the, the whole ensemble of, 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 uh, of factors. Um, and, and so th there were kind of a lot of sort of additional APIs we ended up building on top of like this really basic kind of transaction processing part that I think people sort of don't quite, or it's just, it's difficult to understand, right? Because right. it's kind of like AWS and that people kind of know, well, they do kind of the EC2 thing and the S3 thing and there's a bunch of other things. And kind of unless you're actually in the details building infrastructure, it's pretty hard to keep track of all the other things. Um, and I think sort of Stripe has had a similar dynamic where that initial component was very good product market fit to, but then was actually, in order to actually get here, a huge amount of additional work that kind of had to happen and the invention that had to happen that's just basically hard to understand without a lot of context. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that kind of for better or worse, uh, Stripe has kind of faced for its history where uh, people kind of, well, because it's kind of hard to assess from the outside unless you kind of know a lot about the domain, uh, Kind of the, the bad part of that is people just kind of don't get what Stripe does or why it matters or kind of in what way it manifests the consequence. And the, the good part is competitors also right. don't really get it, right? And so Stripe got to this point uh, sort of you know, pretty easily. And so it kind of cuts both ways. Um, that brings up a lot of different questions. Um, so one of the things I heard in there is that you've, there are successive product market fits. So like yep. you, there are different signs. They come in. They, they don't all come together. Sometimes they're spread out. Right. Sometimes you have to get product market fit in one place yep. to let you build to realize you don't have it in right. another place. Yes. Um, does that sound right? Uh, I think it's exactly right. Um, and then, so um, for, fast forward to 2015. Uh, and so what, what scale are you at today? Like, how, how do you talk about scale when you're talking in public? We've, um, well, this gets to uh, sort of another issue of sort of to what degree you should be forthcoming about your business metrics. Um, right. And we've always kind of been at the school of, of, of not being. Yeah, okay. Um, and so I think the current public things we say are we handle billions of dollars a year for, we, we actually recently started saying hundreds of thousands of businesses. Okay. Um, and that's kind of about it. But I mean, it, it's, um, 
Yeah, Stripe has become kind of the, the default thing that technology companies use when they want to move money around on the internet. Well, that's a, that's a somewhat broader thing than saying you have hundreds of thousands and billions. So that's that uh, saying you're the default is a good thing to say. It's the thing you want to say. Um, uh, um, sorry, I'm trying to back out to a different different set of questions. So, talked about scale. Let's talk about, oh, you talked about Connect. So mm. um, I was reading one interview where somebody, basically somebody said, well, look, don't we have PayPal? Isn't PayPal fine? Right. You said, well, PayPal is not really what we do. Uh-huh. PayPal is for um, person-to-person transfer, party-to-party right. transfer. He said, that's kind of what you described when you were talking about Connect to me. Ah, right. Bit. So, and, and this, is, this is a great example of where kind of at a high level, you're like, oh, aren't Where the, the VC same? doesn't understand at all what you're doing. So I'm going to ask you Or, or the interviewer, or I'm not sure which interview this was, um, uh, but where like, it really gets down into the details. And so uh, uh, kind of the, the critical difference is, are you building software that sort of coordinates these, this kind of network of money flowing, right? I mean, uh, like what Lyft needs or what Instacart needs is very different to the experience of, oh, I'm going to pay my friend. Right. With Lyft, it's, I mean, you're, Kind of mechanically, sort of coordinating this payment between the the rider uh, and the and the driver, and sort of that like Lyft is mediating that yep. payment, yep. and then there's sort of all these additional considerations around it for like what happens if it has to get refunded, or like actually the amount can be different because you can give a tip to the driver, and maybe it'll get charged back later, and has to work in different countries, and so kind of in practice, completely kind of different problem spaces. I mean, I guess the problem face of person to person payments is like how do I do really frictionless onboarding, and honestly, how do I have people not forget about it because People don't actually in practice pay their friends all that often, whatever. <laughs> There's like super different problem spaces, but at yeah. a high level, you're right. Both involve money going from one person to another. And so without really being kind of, basically without talking to the people, building the apps instead of hearing their issues directly firsthand, yep. they do kind of sound superficially similar. And so I guess that then you would say that your product suite now is a really straightforward and authentic expression of your original thing, which was people make apps and they'd like to get, like to get paid for them. And mm. then... Paid by their customers and sometimes pay their suppliers out. Is that? Yeah, no, I think I think it's basically right. So the, the way we kind of came to think about it was um, there's kind of uh, two two dimensions or maybe three, three to it. So the, the, the reason we decided to uh, drop out of school or maybe go and leave uh, was because <laughs> uh, we we realized that uh, just in general the market as a whole was actually tiny, and so you kind of hear transactions on the on the internet. You know that's kind of been done or something, right? And um, but then you sort of just look at it from a high-level standpoint, and you sort of just look at the total figures, and about, you know, uh, certainly at the time, 2% of all consumer spending was kind of happening through the internet, right? And so kind of as a total industry, sort of commerce on the internet was kind of 2% off the, the starting blocks. And so kind of whatever had happened to date was still sort of incredibly early in, in, in terms of sort of the, the ultimate curve of what was to come. Um, the second one was just kind of more directly looking at sort of the global aspects, where sort of the smartphone is kind of how kind of the internet was reaching the rest of the world. Um, and sort of, again, we were really early in that process happening. And so there are all these like incredibly promising nascent markets in China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, et cetera, right? Um, and, and then the third one kind of to your connect point was that businesses were building these kind of increasingly just complicated transaction-oriented services. And I mean, Connect is a good example, but crowdfunding is another, right? Yep. Where sort of Kickstarter does not monetize or facilitate advertising. They facilitate, I mean, just this completely new kind of transaction, right? Yep. Um, and so realizing that kind of this was increasingly sort of at, at the core, like not just part of, but at the core of what kind of the next generation of companies were doing. Like if you think about it, Airbnb, Uber, Kickstarter, Instacart, Lyft. Everybody all, interesting. 
Yeah, really? they're, they're like uh, kind of this these new kinds of sort of real world economic relationships were sort of an integral part. Yep. And sort of the belief was that well, there's going to be a lot of those, and sort of the, the, the use cases are going to sort of get richer and more complex over time. And there needs to be sort of a completely integrated set of tools and APIs to facilitate the whole thing. Okay, so I'm going to ask a bunch of questions about engineering and stack and, and, and product definition and then organization. But yep. you, get, you guys get bored if you don't ask questions. Do people have questions uh, for at this point, or should we keep going? How did you go about setting up the sort of back-end relationships with the credit card processors and all that when you were really small? Right. Uh, good question. Uh, this was one of the hardest parts. Uh, so in the beginning, we sort of worked with, um, this part that I might leave off the record, but um, in the beginning we worked with, uh, there was a guy I met at a party, and huh. um, his friend ran a payments company. Uh, it was like a little, tiny little operation uh, based out of the Midwest. And they agreed to sort of let us build a prototype on top of their thing and just kind of didn't ask too many questions. Um, and so when you sort of instantly created your Stripe account, uh, John and I got an email and we'd go and like fill out the paperwork and submit it to this company and instantly uh, set up your Stripe For account. For real, but yep. manually? Manually. Wow. Um, uh, How many did you do it like that? Dozens. Um, <laughs> And, and actually, that, that worked really well because I mean, the salient point was they didn't have to do it, the user didn't have to do it, and we were, we were fine doing it for them. And actually, there were a lot, it's a separate line of conversation, but there were a lot of things where we just sort of manually did it ourselves for a very long time. Um, and then, um, then we, we went and we met with uh, Wells Fargo uh, and sort of described what we were doing to them, and we'd got an introduction through somebody and so forth, and uh, uh, they sort of uh, unequivocally said that they had no interest in working with us, and so it's like, <laughs> hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, it was getting sort of increasingly frustrating because sort of it was growing and we were having to fill out more and more of these forms, right? Um, uh, but, but we sort of had no route to, uh, to, to you know, something better. And so we, we asked actually one of our early investors uh, for advice on this. It was a guy called Jeff Ralston. So Jeff had been the CEO of Lala, which was kind of like an early version of, of Spotify. Uh, and they'd, they were like one of the first kind of legit legal kind of music services. Mm -hmm. And they'd gotten deals done with all the record labels. And so we kind of thought, you know, who do we know who got a deal done with the bank? Uh, well, Jeff got a deal done with the record labels. I mean, <laughs> you can deal with the record labels, you can deal with anyone. And so uh, we, we went to Jeff and we basically said, you know, help. Um, and um, uh, he, he's like, oh, I didn't actually do all these deals with the record labels. Um, uh, it was actually uh, uh, one of Lala's co-founders, um, uh, Billy Alvarado. Um, and so uh, he pointed us uh, to Billy. Uh, and so I, or John and I met with Billy. And uh, he had actually, so Apple had bought Lala and Billy had just left. And I think, I don't know, maybe Billy was bored. Um, and so he's like, all right, so I'll, I'll help you, you kids out a little bit. Um, and so uh, he, he actually ended up joining Stripe mm -hmm. as maybe the fifth or sixth person. Uh, and we were like, he wasn't an engineer. And, and so at the you time- You had a BD guy as your fifth or sixth person. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and we were really torn over it because and it was like- super surprising for yeah, a company that's so engineering. No, no. We, and we were like, he doesn't write code. I mean, uh, should <laughs> oh, we hire a person who do? doesn't write code? <laughs> right. Like, what, what does one even do that's not writing code? Um, and so we were sort of uh, sh sharing this uh, kind of inner anguish with, with Jeff. And, and Jeff, um, to his credit, was sort of commendably patient um, and just like, Patrick, well, one, stop being an idiot. I don't think he said idiot. I think he said, some, said something stronger. But for the sake of the record, I'll say he called me an idiot. And he's like, you should just hire Billy. Uh, and I remember he promised me 
that uh, if it didn't work out, he would, uh, he would go back and retroactively pay Billy's salary. And so he's like, so there's no downside for you. Um, and at the time, we didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, and so, uh, that, that, so that mattered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so uh, then we, we hired Billy, and um, I mean, Billy is still at Stripe and you know, one of the most uh, important people at the company. How did you... Um... Oh, actually, sorry, and to finish the story. So then, basically, Billy went and solved Wells. Um, uh, and so, it, it, I mean, there's a whole kind of separate line of conversation we had about sort of how to do business development effectively. And, you know, we were really bad at it in the beginning. Um, I think it's actually sort of a very interesting question, sort of how should a startup partner with other entities? And obviously, that's kind of a pretty important part of what Stripe has to do. Um, and Billy, Billy sort of taught us a hell of a lot. But about, um, about two months after Billy joined, sort of we had the requisite relationship with Wells Fargo. Wow. I was going to ask, how do you even evaluate how he's doing? Because uh, he's such a different background, such a different right. skill than you. I guess he just did magic things like bring Wells Fargo and you see, it's probably good enough. Yeah. yeah, we were kind of at the point where there were sort of fairly discrete things that kind of had to happen or not. Um, right. and, and so in that sense, it was, it was kind of fairly uh, accessible. Um, but there were also just like a bunch of things where <laughs> he knew that, I mean, he'd basically been through kind of a real startup before in Lala. And so, you know, for example, I remember him asking pretty early on um, how we do payroll. And we're like, you know, occasionally we like multiply the agreed salary um, by, I mean, length of time since people were last paid and then it's like, give them that money. Um, <laughs> and he's like, and what about, you know, deductions and tax and all these things? And we're like, um, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Um, and so there's a lot of also cleanup that, that Billy helped, uh, helped us through. That's good to have people who clean up. Um, okay. So I think I, I think I know this question. So, um, you know, I, I think you guys had such a clear product value proposition. Uh, I was going to ask about how you decided what things new to do. Um, so I right. think I have a guess now, listening to you talk. What could you talk about it for a second? Yeah, so uh, I think this is like a pretty hard question when you're building a consumer product because kind of consumers don't really know what they want, right? And that like, I mean, this, this is sort of the, the, the challenge for Facebook where it's, you're, you're dealing with all these mercurial teenagers and sort of, you know, the, the greatest minds of our generation are sort of staring intently at all this data trying to figure out, you know, what do the millennials want? Um, but um, uh, it's very difficult, right? And I mean, to be clear to their credit, they've done sort of a fantastic job of sort of keeping abreast of it with all yep. the acquisitions and so forth. Um, but it's hard. You can't just sort of, you can't figure it out through analysis. Right. Um, uh, or these people haven't figured out how to yet. Um, uh, whereas uh, when you're building for developers, uh, you, you, you can just cheat again. You can just ask them, right? right. Um, and, and in fact, even if you don't ask them, they're, they're they'll, they'll probably tell you frequently anyway. relatively vocal um, in, in, in their preferences and desires. Uh, and so, I mean, uh, that, well, that, that, it's that's a little glib, right? I, I was going to say, right, because you, you prioritize and right. which ones, right? Um, and so we, we pay a lot of attention to sort of who we judge to, who we judge to be the ones with good judgment. Uh, and you also have to sort of fit the whole thing into kind of a long-term perspective of sort of how these pieces fit together and how the product ought to evolve and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, one of the, uh, I remember Mark Zuckerberg commenting at one point, and I think this is kind of uh, uh, good advice, um, that this is a, like, in general, I think kind of the valley over mythologizes kind of the, the role of the founder and the criticality of, of that person and so forth. But he, he, he commented that it's, a, it's very important for the CEO to be sort of integrally involved in a lot of the kind of the micro product decisions yep. because what's optimal to do on a one-year time horizon is obviously is, is often quite divergent from what's optimal to do on a five-year time horizon. Yep. And it's just difficult for anyone other than the CEO and especially the CEO founder to have as long kind of uh, an optimal a time horizon kind of in their optimization function. Yep. Uh, and so I think there's uh, kind of 
a fairly important aspect there. Um, but yeah, for, for us, it's, I would say, kind of 70% listening to the people who we think are either have really good judgment or are themselves likely to become really big because right. kind of just, you know, in and of itself. Ipso facto. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, maybe the other 30% sort of doing things that we think ought to be big, uh, yep. but for some reason we're not being asked for. And so sort of a good example of this is we... Um, we build this integration with Alipay. Alipay is kind of like the PayPal of China. They're, they're I mean, as with sort of so many of these things in China have this kind of they're pretty big, exactly kind of eye, pretty fast. eye-watering it's scale. Be bigger tomorrow, um, and we kind of have all these conversations with businesses where like, and we now have this Alipay integration, so sort of everyone in China can now buy from you. Um, and you know, the business would say, well, you know, I don't know if that's kind of relevant to us. We don't, we don't actually sell that much in China. We're like, let's just think through the logic of that statement. Um, yeah, and uh, and why it might be that you know people in China aren't buying from you, um, uh, and uh, then they you know often be like ah good point, um, and and add Alipay and so things could go well. Um, but yeah, anyway, seventy percent I would say being being led by the the smart companies and developers. Right, and then how do you? Uh, well, that two different questions. So um, how's Bitcoin relate to something like that? So the Bitcoin looks like a bit, developers get very excited about it. Do you guys get excited about it? Like. How do you think about Bitcoin? If all developers say, yeah. oh my gosh, let's do this. Right. It doesn't feel like a thing that's um, huge yet. Yep. Um, definitely not huge yet. Uh, I think that you, you have to be sort of somewhat okay with sort of making, I, mean, I, I guess multiple people have, have kind of um, made the statement that uh, you, you can't judge decisions uh, by their outcomes. And you know, kind of at first blush, that sounds like a strange statement. But, but I think kind of what I get to is this idea that sort of you have to judge decisions by their EV yeah. <laughs> rather than by sort of the, the particular outcome that in right. fact resulted. And so... EV, expected value. Uh, sorry, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so even, I mean, certainly at the time and even now, it's not completely clear sort of what happens to Bitcoin. Um, right. But I think that sort of, I mean, the, even if the probability is relatively low, sort of the, the potential significance of some success outcome is kind of large enough that it's probably worth kind of keeping abreast of it. Um, and also, I guess we, we sort of felt some just general affinity to that community. I mean, I don't personally, uh, nor, nor I guess the Stripe, sort of subscribe to the sort of uh, crypto anarchists, sort of, you know, uh, let's liberate our, ourselves from the tyranny of our monetary oppressors kind of school of Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's bigger, <laughs> bigger than it sounds like. But, um, it's bigger than you think. <laughs> uh, I think. Uh, I just realized recently that probably that the original you know paper on Bitcoin from Satoshi uh, is probably kind of the first paper that sort of you know both a paper in political science and in CS. It's a beautiful. Um, pa- everyone should read at least. It's seven pages yeah, it's long. Great, it's beautiful. Right. Right. Um, and like slightly insane, but beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, insane in a good way, mostly. Yeah. I mean, whatever. The the first block has the the New York Times from around the financial crisis and so forth. So anyway, definitely a strong uh, uh, political agenda. But uh, I think the kind of the, the distributed systems aspect and honestly the idea of sort of a decentralized infrastructure that sort of can be you know, a system and a ledger and so forth for sort of so much of the substrate, I mean, yeah. that, that's kind of a cool idea, right? Yep. Um, and so we, we wanted to do a bit to help move it along. Okay, so who runs product at Stripe? Uh, so... Well, we, we have a bunch of different product engineering teams. Um, some of those teams have product managers on them. Not all of them do. Uh, they're, without actually counting, maybe five or six of those teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, not all of them are kind of formally broken out yet and so forth. And then there is a single engineering manager who manages all of the managers on those teams. 
and then the, I manage the product managers reporting to an engineering manager. So, so, so the product managers report to the there's basically a single manager for each of the product teams, and, and that person manages the product manager. Cross functional, manage a manager who manages engineers and product. Uh, okay, uh, so the problem is that uh, I guess there's um, uh, you know this product managers, and then this is like product and sort of the engineering of the product. But just the, the simplification or oversimplification is that there are these products with teams associated with them. There's a single manager who manages all of the products. Okay. Uh, and then I manage that manager. And so kind of who runs product at Stripe? Well, I mean, it sort of depends on the product because, I mean, the team does kind of first and foremost, and then I guess also sort of that manager and then on some level me. Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason I asked is because you just noted how important it was to have a CEO and founder in the details of right. a lot of things. Yep. And that tends to create um, a structural instability for what you, the Valley usually calls VP of product. That's a brutal role because right. you're either in a company where the CEO founder is micromanaging the product yep. or you're in a company where they totally empower you to run product. Right. And then you have the message that the CEO doesn't care about the product. Right. And so it's, it's, a, it's a hard place to be. Yeah, and so, I mean, the... I guess part of what you're getting at is sort of in a lot of companies, sort of this this separation between, say, the engineering kind of org and, and the product management function, right. and then sort of the VP product, the person overseeing this product management function. If the CEO is really closely involved, that becomes sort of a pretty thin or at least difficult role, you right? You do spreadsheets. Uh, uh, well, keep, I've never seen one, but okay, it, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, whereas in our case, we don't have a separate product org. Right. Um, and so again, this engineering manager, I mean, there's a vast amount in that job, even sort of leaving particular product decisions aside because it's all the questions around sort of how do we staff them and build them and execute them and operate them and all these kinds of questions. And so she's sort of fairly involved in like the actual product decisions, um, uh, sort of as am I, but I think it avoids the kind of VP product issue because you know, yep. even if there was zero product decision in the role, which there's there isn't, but even if there was zero, there's still a huge amount like in, in all the other parts. Making things work, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that will scale, I wonder how long that will scale. I mean, it's a little bit unusual not to have, have them separate out at some, eventually you get some product scale. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I think part of this comes to the, fact, the way in which sort of Stripe is different where sort of we're, I mean, we're building not solely, but but in large part for other engineers. And so right. I think engineers can have excellent instincts for sort of what the right product to build yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas sort of when you're trying to kind of empathize or put yourself in the shoes of some completely different kind of user, then perhaps kind of the impetus for a separate product or is greater. So interesting. So um, so you've you've done product extension, you've done new things, you did connect some of the things. Um, have you launched products that you've killed? <sighs> I guess this is an availability bias in the ones that immediately come to mind. But um, I don't, we, we haven't launched, uh, well, actually, but part of I think what's, uh, what's so difficult um, and, and feels so tragic when you're in the throes of it, uh, of sort of a, a fast growing startup, is that product uh, innovation slows down. Uh, and you're like, why would that be? I mean, you know, you guys launched with whatever ten people, now we're three hundred and thirty people. How could it possibly slow down? Right. Uh, and I remember sort of observing this even before I was kind of in it myself, where um, you know, for Airbnb and Dropbox and these other companies, it felt to me just as a user that basically again, the, the product innovation slowed down. Um, and I guess what happens is there's kind of there's so much investment that's required. So one, there's sort of investment required just to kind of keep up with the growth, right? Yep. And so, I mean, the the ten people who <laughs> built kind of the original Stripe. They weren't capable of operating current Stripe. Operating current Stripe requires sort of all of these resources, right? Yep. Um, but then additionally, you have to sort of 
I mean, because you're looking to do more things and both iterate on what already exists and build new things and so forth. And so if you're learning how to sort of walk and chew gum and juggle and tap dance and all these things kind of in parallel, um, uh, sort of that requires hiring a lot of people. And then you have to kind of train all of those people and just kind of have the company works and the product works and all the rest. And then they kind of have to all learn in this kind of emergent process sort of how to coordinate together and then actually relearn that several times because it's sort of constantly shifting as this like dynamic equilibrium beneath them or whatever. And so kind of the net effect is that the product actually advances surprisingly slowly. I think the flip side of it is that uh, when you come out of it, if you do it well, it, then it's like stand back, right, where, where it can be so fast. And I think Facebook is actually a good example of a right. company that sort of went through the slow and then really sped up. But yep. sort of the the, 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 the... the mobile years were, the early mobile years were pretty hard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, but the, kind of the, the, the rate of product improvement actually kind of has basically this surprising shape. Um, yep. And so, and also you can measure in different axes uh, in terms of kind of, you know, sustaining improvement versus kind of, you know, new axes and orthogonal improvement and so forth. Uh, and um, anyway, all of which to say, we haven't launched all that many kind of discreetly new things, things you could conceivably then kill. I mean, we've built little features and things like that that haven't worked out you know, super well. We've tried experiments uh, mm -hmm. and so forth that, that haven't worked, but nothing kind of apocly kind of new. Um, although part of that also gets to, I think, how we build products, which is we were pretty, I mean, again, because we work with developers um, uh, and because they'll give you pretty good feedback. We often run ideas by them. We'll build a little beta. We'll test it with them and so forth. And then if they don't like it or they don't think it's a good idea, then we'll kind of just stop working on it, right? And so by the time something gets to launch, it's, it's generally gone through sort of quite a bit of validation. And so the things that have been sort of really launched, launched, uh, you know, those, those... Pretty useful. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so a couple more things. Oh, sure. Can you talk about any early acquisition offers you may have had? Yeah, um, so we've always been pretty explicit, um, like in the press and in any meetings we've had and so forth, that we're just not that interested in it. Um, and so you can't be somewhat successful uh, or, well, to the extent that Stripe has been successful, um, uh, sort of, for any company, I think it's kind of hard for that to happen without sort of all these potential acquirers just kind of, you know, I think sniffing around is kind of the right term. They don't necessarily have that much interest, but they're kind of interested. Um, and, and also sort of one tends to think of sort of potential acquirers or even just other companies in general as monolithic entities. And kind of coming back to the BD point, uh, I think sort of one of the critical realizations is that, you know, companies are composed of sort of a pretty diverse array of individuals and you're not talking to a company, you're talking to a person. Um, and, and you need to kind of really piece that apart. Um, and, and so anyway, we, we never had any serious discussions with any acquirer in the history of Stripe and we were sort of pretty quick to close off any kind of sniffing conversations just because it wasn't what we were about to do. Okay. And actually, that was uh, one place where kind of ha our prior company had kind of gone through this sort of talent acquisition, and, uh, and, but we, I mean, we'd gone through an acquisition process, and I think that was kind of helpful in showing us kind of what that looked like, and it, it enabled us to, I think, be much just clearer ourselves in, sort of, in terms of what we wanted. I think once you've been through an acquisition process for an okay, comp an okay company, I think it really encourages you to notice what's special and what's working in the place you're at because it never quite works out the way you want. And it also just highlights, like, it's it's unusual for companies to be as special as Stripe or as special as the other things. And when you find something like that and you really have it working, you really want to hold on to it. Let me ask a technology question. So um, I would view, you know, I think you look around and say, well, Stripe's probably the most modern payment stack today. Um, so how do you, but you're also growing your customer base. Your customers don't necessarily want the most modern payment stack. They want the one that's stable and the one that works and doesn't change all the time. And so how are you going to think about technology change uh, going forward? I think that is a great question. Um, and uh, it's something we're sort of mindful of 
you know, from the beginning in developing Stripe, that you sort of have to build all these things and sort of in, invest in sort of different ways to enable you to kind of innovate um, uh, sort of without being problematic on that kind of other reliability axis. Yep. And so, for example, we have this kind of really complicated versioning system for the Stripe API where sort of there are all these different sort of translation layers compose sort of help turn one API version into the prior one. Wow. So basically people can be on almost any version uh, yeah. for, for you know, that we've had over the last couple of years, and everything works just fine. We recently went and deprecated uh, a Stripe API version from like 2010. Mm -hmm. That was kind of like a big deal uh, uh, for us. And we looked through and there were like three people still using it. Uh, and so we're like, all right, you know, we can reach out to these people and tell them that we're, we're no longer going to support it. But sort of as a default matter, basically anything we ever release, we're, we're going to sort of commit to, to keeping it to work. And that kind of required like... That's, build e that's easy to say. and. Fairly hard to well, do. Well, exactly. It's term. pretty hard to do that and also enable you to sort of change lots of things, right? right. And that's kind of where this, this translation there kind of comes in. And so it, that's kind of an example of the kind of thing that you have to do yeah. in order to enable that. But for us, it's a constant process of sort of, uh, of, of revisiting that, right? Because, I mean, you know, you kind of have these two axes again of sort of reliability and sort of, you know, well, I, I can hate to say innovation, but innovation. Um, and, um, you know, to you're trying to expand on both because you actually want to get more reliable over time, obviously, right? Um, or and also kind of the difficulty in being reliable over time, just because more stuff sort right. of increases. And you would also like to be doing more things over time. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think we have a pretty good sense for kind of what the right set of trade-offs might have been kind of, you know, a, a year ago. Yep. Um, but sort of in the current state today, it's something we're, we're literally. You know, I, mean, I was having this discussion last night with a, with a group of people. Um, uh, I will say that sort of, uh, I mean, the general thing, and I think it's just like a testament to the engineers. I think Stripe is is just one of the most reliable infrastructure providers, just period, right? In that um, uh, the sort of the total availability record for kind of the API as a whole um, has has just been kind of remarkably solid, um, and. I don't know, I guess uh, I no longer write code, and so this is kind of no so credit quite, to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm mostly just I'm sort of uh, impressed from a slight distance. Okay, so um, we'll ask a couple of management questions, and we'll, we'll open it up. So um, you said 330 people, so you, well, the Dunbar's number, well in the, well, well the rearview mirror, 150 people was over a year ago probably. So what do you do differently now? I mean, you went off and you hired Claire as right. COO, right? That's right. Um, what else do you do differently uh, now than you would have done a year ago? And how do you think about this stage yep. from, from a managing the company standpoint? I think the, um, the, the big change, I'm sure kind of other speakers have said this, or, uh, well, actually, first I should preface everything I say here by, I mean, I guess it's, uh, I feel like I'm sort of a bad person to be speaking on this stuff because, I mean, you've, you'll, you have had or will have all these other speakers who sort of have actually solved all these issues. Uh, and well, so you should sort of d d discount everything I say with sort of the, the fact that, you know, this is somebody who's sort of currently trying to figure it all out and you know, probably at least 50% optimistically of what I say is mistaken. Um, but um, <laughs> at least I can... No comment. <laughs> but like, uh, I don't pay pretty close attention uh, when Patrick says that. Uh, at, at least I can... Uh, Give you some bad ideas you can kind of benchmark others against, but um, so um, the, the big change and the most kind of striking thing for me, uh, and maybe this partially comes from some of my personality, uh, where I am kind of introverted, uh, is the need for sort of just formal, explicit communication, broadcast communication, yep. and it feels sort of 
I don't know. I mean, it's unnatural, right? Um, and like no, nobody sort of wakes up in the morning and you know, sets out to speak some bullet points. Yeah, exactly, right? Or three priorities for this morning. Thought I'd give an update on our Q5 strategy, um, and um, uh, so there's sort of a, a lot of that 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 just you you have to learn to be okay with. And I think part of the way to rationalize it is that a startup itself is not a natural environment. So you're absolutely correct that sort of your natural instincts are are going to, I mean, the, the optimal things for you to do are going to differ from what feels natural because the startup itself is not natural. Sort of the social groups that you're a part of, that you participate in, they don't generally grow at 50% or 100% per year and, and kind of a, a different sort of set of uh, behaviors are required to, to enable that. And so that's kind of the, the, the primary one. Um, and then let me, let me highlight this again. So half the people at Stripe weren't there 12 months ago. Half. Yeah, no, it, it blows so, my mind too. So half the people, whatever your last annual offsite was, or whatever you does, yep. didn't didn't hear anything Patrick said in the deck you wrote a, a year ago. Right, and every discussion we had and debate and you know tortured sort of questioning and so forth, like they weren't there for that. And yep. you know, we might we, we might have spent months on it and sort of a new person comes and like, oh and I don't think we should be doing that, we should do this. Uh, right. right. Um and of course they, they do it with the very best of intent. And and in fact a large part of that is what what's good about hiring new people is they yep. sort of help I they reopen they, some things. Exactly. They reopen things, they have a better sense for how to do things, they they bring new perspectives, sort of all that stuff, right? But they also just don't have the context. And so it's this kind of very very delicate sort of you know, a balancing act. I think this is a profound. This is a profound realization that almost every good CEO goes through, which is they realize that their that they their job is to communicate. That you're running on a tighter loop inside your head than anywhere else. So you're learning all the time, all the time, all the time. And that the organization one layer, one layer, two layers, three layers away from you can't absorb that change, and you can't communicate all what you're thinking all the time. And so it's all about consistency and alignment. And so almost everybody I, I talk to. Values alignment. The 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 longer it goes. Sure. Yeah. Um, although again, I think there's a, sort of a, a, a delicate sort of sure. superposition of things required there. Where sort of on the one hand, yes, you want alignment. On the other hand, to kind sort of the company is sort of overly rigid um, right. or or prescriptive or or, or whatever. Um, I mean, that's going to be problematic. That's the kind of thing that makes people want to quit companies because yep. sort of you know their particular perspective or the thing that they want to do is is divergent from this like calcified edifice that is the company, right? And yep. so it's kind of how do you have sort of the, the right amount of, of structure and flexibility and, and yeah. all those things? I think you're trying to, my two cents are you're trying to teach people how to think in the right ways and you're trying to teach people how to, you're trying to create the conditions so that they would make roughly the same decision right. as whether you're in the room or not. Yeah. And well, that, that's a li- even that's a little strict. Well, and caveat with, I'm I'm definitely not sort of the the right person or the optimal person to be making all kinds of decisions. In right. fact, I'm the optimal person to be making a decreasing fraction of decisions, <laughs> right? And so it, it's not precisely sort of to do what I would do where I'm yep. in the room, but um, <laughs> I don't know some version of like well, yeah, the, stri- I, the stripe, the stripe, yeah, exactly, stripe, and, that, and that you know, like there is there is sort of in the multi-dimensional space of of you know. Uh, uh, philosophies and, and kind of perspectives. There's kind of a, a stripe blob, basically, right. and sort of I maybe am closer to its center of mass than others because I've been around longer and maybe had a bit more influence. Yeah. But it is distinct and it's shifting and it ought to shift. And, and so it, yeah. that is not um, what you expected him to say. Multi-dimensional <laughs> philosophical space where stripe blob. The stripe blob, right? Yeah. Um, I think it really is a ring to it. Um, and uh, well, a corollary of all of that in terms of just the kind of the explicitness required. I think the kind of the more g- general version. Uh, of it is uh, that just you should generally shift from from speaking to writing. Um, oh, 
Do you think that? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, or, or rather, it's not that you should necessarily speak less. You should probably still speak, right? Um, uh, but, um, or at least I think so. I don't know if anyone else thinks so. But, um, uh, but that you should, you need to add writing, right? Because speaking can kind of only happen once and generally not to everyone or it probably becomes super boring if it's to everyone, right? That's just giant production. Um, uh, uh, whereas sort of writing persists through time, right? Um, and, and can be revisited and can be updated and, yep. and so forth. And, um, and also has sort of a helpful, at least in, in the good cases, sort of rigidity and clarity to it. And so right. one of my kind of favorite um, I don't know, things I realized, uh, uh, or just ones that kind of had the biggest impact on me um, over, the, over the last many two years was uh, this paper from, I think it was Bruno Latour, um, and he was talking about the, uh, just, uh, the, the scientific revolution, right, and, 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 um, and the invention of writing. And kind of, we've all heard that sort of, uh, the writing and the inventing of the printing press uh, was sort of critical in enabling it. And they're basically, you know, right. Gutenberg, scientific revolution, yeah. Yeah. you know, job done. And, uh, and it's sort of his argument, at least, goes that it was actually kind of much more complex or nuanced than that, where it's not that sort of writing or the printing press sort of per se enabled more distribution, which automatically led to more ideas because you know, people still talked a lot uh, uh, you know, previously and people had a pretty good sense for sort of the total space of ideas. And so, uh, you know, simplistically, the printing press could come along and doesn't substantially change things. Uh, but that the additional property of the printing press, beyond just kind of dissemination that it added, was uh, was concreteness right. um, and kind of rigidity. And so, when when you're hearing something from a friend of a friend of a friend recounting, you know, something that happened a year ago, you know, God knows how much it's shifted and changed. Uh, and because it's not really rigid, it's 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 this just. You know, again, amorphous blob. Uh, you, you can't. It's hard to disagree with it because who right. knows exactly what they said, and so it's hard to weed out and reject the bad ideas. Whereas when it's when it's writing, you can point to you know paragraph three, sentence two. This is wrong. It does not match my data. Right. right. Uh, it's actually kind of that aspect that was so critical. And so anyway, going back to sort of the, the hmm. writing version, I think that uh, it's it, it's just it's it's much more clear, and and it can be wrong, and it can be updated uh, in a way that I think is is really helpful. And that's super interesting. Um, <laughs> I could talk about that for like a lot. A lot. Like I, I feel like the way you communicate really shows through in your product a lot of times. Like we, we communicated in bugs and Bugzilla, Mozilla, and it created very. <laughs> well, anyway, it's an interesting. A lot of artifacts get get created. So let's um let's do questions. You had a question? Sort of tangentially related, but the yeah. also makes the argument that interpretation is really the big issue with writing. So the idea is that it's not so much permanent, it's that it's right for reinterpretation. So, so the question is just that writing is all like the uh, Latour, the guy that uh, Patrick quoted, uh, would have said that writing is always ripe for reinterpretation. But I think Patrick's making the point that it's just simply more rigid than just spoken. Sure, right, right, uh, and on the, it's on a spectrum, right? Yes. Oh, sure. So it sounds like there might be a. Uh, oh, sorry. Is there, is there ne 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 next version of the class, I guess we can we have the Latour ver uh, yeah, deep, deep dive. A couple of philosophical blob questions. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that you think the name's right to play Amber. Oh, right. Yeah, so um, this is also an embarrassing story. Um, it, it, well, it's a kind of a helpful um, exercise in humility because, you know, to just remind you of. Um, uh, <laughs> Just how mistaken your 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 past self could be or, or, or wrong. Um, 
So uh, anyway, uh, slash dev slash payments, you know, we thought it was super awesome, cool name. Uh, the, the world uh, didn't quite agree. And um, when we went to incorporate uh, with Delaware, we, you know, do, 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 duly uh, uh, filled out uh, slash dev slash payments on the paperwork, it was rejected because uh, we had actually checked, can you have a slash in the name? And you can, but you can't have a leading slash. And so, um, but of course, you know, being uh, determined entrepreneurs, we overcame that and we incorporated as S-L-A-S-H, D-E-V-S-L-A, it was really bad. And then we'd like get mail, whereas like S-L-A-S-H slash character, D-E-V, yeah. There were many problems with this name. And uh, <laughs> and then you'd have to go and have a meeting with a bank, and they're like, "All right," and you know, it's kind of the last question walking out. And oh, it's like, "What's the company called?" And then basically everything fell to pieces. So um, <laughs> we um, and you wonder why we couldn't work with Wells, but um, so we kind of eventually came to realize that we needed to change the name, and uh, we we just couldn't cover the good name. I guess you know many people have have been through this. And it basically resorted to us. We had kind of all these books in the office and just like opening books and being like, you know, uh, actually one of them was a motorcycle repair manual because John was riding motorcycles. And so we were like, carburetor, hmm, not probably hard, too hard to spell. And so you'd flip another few pages and it's like wheel, that's a bit generic. And, and so um, just, we were literally reduced to picking random words late at night. And uh, then uh, one of the folks at Stripe had the bright idea of, well, why don't we just assemble like a big list of words and email all of the owners of the dot-com domains. We just kind of see if the words were actually available to, again, just kind of reduce our, our search space a little bit. And so we assembled a list of like 100 words that all seemed like generally cromulent words um, and, uh, and just emailed all, all, all the owners and you know, only 10% of them responded. And of those 10%, you know, most of them wanted millions of dollars, whatever, right? And so we kind of assembled a partial list that way. And, uh, and then we also just kind of continued our own you know, creative process, which we've already established, was awesome. Um, and so we came up with memorable names like um, Pay Demon. Um, and so... Uh, with an A, undoubtedly. We bought both versions. Right. Uh, we sure. still own both versions, actually. Um, and <laughs> if you do a who is on paydemon.com. Um, and um, so, yeah, we thought it was, like, super clever because we could have this, like, awesome mascot, although maybe BSD confusion issues. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, well... It was great. Um, oh, and we also had, um, we really liked the idea of building things uh, and, and so the act of creation and so forth. And so we, we, uh, we thought we were kind of enamored with um, uh, Pay Forge, um, you know, this kind of blacksmith idea. Um, and then, of course, a friend pointed out that other connotations, <laughs> like, oh, good point. Um, and so um, we we're, were really struggling. And so we, um, anyway, the owner of Stripe.com, uh, generously responded to us and had an offer that uh, was, you know, at least w w within our plausible budgetary range. Uh, but we couldn't decide uh, between Pay Demon and Stripe. <laughs> I, sw I swear I'm not making this up. Um, and so this is the part where the kind of the humility comes in. It's like Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, uh, we decided that if we could not settle on a name uh, by, I think it was December twentieth, two thousand eleven, we were just like. Uh, yet to, no, 2010, December 20, 2010. Um, we were just default to Stripe. Um, uh, and we couldn't think of a more compelling name uh, by December 20th, and so Stripe it became. Um, and then we, we sort of, kind of the, the second part of the story is we, um, we, I mean, we hadn't launched this time, right? But we had sort of a handful of beta users. 
uh, and we kind of were going through the, the name, the rename checklist, right? And so you'd like buy new SSL certs and move all the servers and you know regex G sub over the code base and all that stuff, right? Do uh, redo the images, like a lot of stuff to, to change a name, and um, uh, somehow we like neglected one of like tell the users, um, and so all these people, I mean. All these people being like ten of them, but uh, all these people uh, went to log into their dev payments accounts one morning and were like redirected to Stripe, and you know, so we got a few emails like, "Am I being fished or whatever?" But uh, we, we reassured them, and uh, that was that. And actually, made the very last kind of uh, uh, detail in that story is I was then reading um, the Little Kingdom by, by Mike Moore. It's this kind of history of Apple, and apparently Apple went through sort of a similar thing where they couldn't think of a good name, and so they said at sort of the same timeout, "If we haven't thought of a better name by such and such date." Screw it, Apple. Uh, and so uh, we, we subsequently learned of some precedent. Uh, one more question. Um, yeah, so uh, here. Uh, can you talk about your transition from a developer, someone who's technical, someone who worked on the product, to a manager? Yes. Um, so it. Uh, it still pains me a little bit, honestly, um, in that I, I really miss uh, coding. And so I, I, know, I often kind of get this question of, do I miss it or, or not? And kind of, what does that feel like? And just the short answer is, yes, I miss it. Um, the, um, well, uh, there's, I guess, so many things then to say about sort of the ensuing transition to both being a, a leader and a manager and so forth. And on some level, it you know, reduces to, I guess, kind of how do you run a company and, you know, a lot of things to be said there. Um, I think just one thing I'll sort of flag uh, is that, you know, um, in general, I think sort of the industry both kind of over biases towards founders, uh, but also towards CEOs. Um, in that, I guess we all sort of have this um, kind of narrative sort of bias or something where we um, we want to associate kind of abstract concepts like a company with like particular people. Right. And so kind of like I am the shelling point uh, of Stripe instead of being the CEO, but uh, it kind of the, the, the degree to which I am sort of you know, sitting here and representing Stripe, I am sort of in general in aggregate sort of vastly overrepresented relative to, to everyone else. Um, and, uh, and so I guess kind of, to kind of follow that thought, I, I think that's sort of it's not so much you know, my transition to management or whatever, it's kind of a lot of people at Stripe sort of collectively transitioning to kind of running an organization that's sort of a, a pretty you know, large skeleton there. And actually one of the uh, sort of the, the very clarifying realizations for me was Ali Rogani commented that basically the CEO's job can be reduced to just uh, uh, three things or possibly four. And that like everything that's not one of those three or again, potentially four, um, is, is out of scope. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the three that he identified uh, were the strategy and kind of ideally if uh, you know, the strategy is right, it doesn't, that doesn't require much wall clock time, right? Because just, you keep doing the same thing. Um, and se secondly, the culture, because kind of there's no other person who, who, who can do it. Um, or say, there's no person who can do it to the same degree, right? Um, uh, who kind of has the same moral authority. Um, and then the, uh, the, the third one being sort of selecting the, the senior management of the company. Um, because again, no one else can, can sort of do that. Uh, and you know, those people will ideally be sort of domain experts who know far more than you and are much more effective in sort of particular areas. And, but kind of you, ha you have to hire, select them, ensure that they're effective, everything else, right? And so in his kind of uh, ontology, like that's it. That, that's, that's the job. And, and it, I mean, yeah, I it, it's, it's kind pretty of, close. It, it's easy if you get it right. It's 
obviously incredibly hard. I mean, how, can, can you fix a broken culture? Or how does one, or how does one sort of in the abstract come up with a good strategy? I mean, they're really hard sort of um, when they're not working, but I think when they're working, it, it can go pretty smoothly. Um, and then uh, the, the fourth one, uh, which he described as being optional, um, is, is the product, right? That basically the CEO can be the head of product. Um, and maybe even that, that varies depending on sort of the company that you can sort of, the CEO can also be involved with sort of one specific function, right? And that maybe at some companies, the CEO, the CEO is also the head of sales. And I think that's probably sort of a little bit kind of simplistic and kind of reductionist and so forth. Um, although maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel, feel better uh, or something. Um, but uh, sort of, that, that was one of the most helpfully clarifying things that I kind of heard about that transition. Okay, I think we're, we're done for the day. I mean, maybe Patrick can stay for a couple minutes, but we should like, let him go too. So anyway, thanks for class, and we'll okay. see you all on- Thanks for having me. Sure.